Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for March 19th, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have you all on the show tonight. And uh, before we get started, with actual content, want to set it up in about 20 minutes. We're going to have one of our um, most favorite new guests that we've um, had on a several times over the last year or two, Dr. Rachel Beitkoffer. She is going to come on the show, talk about some Democratic messaging and other topics with us um, tonight. And so we're glad to have her on. At least I think this will be about her third appearance on the show, so that will be in just a little bit. Uh, but until then, we've got all kind of political news to talk about, and the first possible topic – I mean it's a real topic for us, but I, I want to say possible because no one knows for sure – is a tweet that Donald Trump came out with yesterday morning. Uh, Tim, I think you, you saw it for us. I'm beginning to wonder if you're on Truth Social. You saw it so quickly. <laughs> um, Donald Trump said that he – Um, anticipates being arrested on Tuesday in New York, and then, of course, there's more that he said, and we'll get into that, um, how people will feel about it and how he wants people to feel about it. But let's just talk about the actual tweet and the implications of that first. Um, Tim, since you were the one that sent it to us, uh, if you want to give more specific, free. Well, yeah, he 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 tweet, did tweet out yesterday morning that he uh um was expecting to be arrested uh on Tuesday and then you know he started in with the protest and you know how everybody's a bunch of crooks and corrupt and he he claimed that he got his information via a leak uh, in the DA's office up there, which I, what, probably almost totally doubt. Uh, and, and, and and as the day wore on, people got to wondering if he just made it up or started something. And, of course, you know, we'll, we'll get into this, but other others chimed in. Uh, he did say it on Truth Social, and, and it, it hit the major networks about as soon as he said it. I just happened to have the news on. was the reason I heard it as quickly uh, as I, I did. Uh, but he said at the end of that um, tweet, you know, uh, protest, take our nation back. And, and he tweeted in all capital letters. If y'all ever noticed, he loves to do that a lot. He yeah. said, we just can't allow this anymore. They're killing our nation as we sit back and watch. We must save America. Protest, protest, protest. 
and then the stuff started hitting the fan. <laughs> yeah, um, I will tell you this. I do believe Tim does not on Truth Social. You've convinced me that you did see it on the news. You've got your alibi there. Right. Um, and actually, I think I need to stand correct because I started using the term tweet, and that's incorrect. I believe when the one post on Truth Social, it is called a truth, and you truth things. Which <laughs> I don't know what structure of grammar that is, but uh, but that will be what that you're doing. That is hilarious. Um, you can't make this stuff up. But, Catherine, <laughs> let's kind of get into a ne- the next part of this. Tuesday morning, afternoon – Let's just talk about the arrest or what, you know, the, the, the indictment or whatever you want to call side of Trump, not in any reactions. What do you think ha- does or does not happen on Tuesday? Do you think he actually goes in or, or gets taken in? Well, I just want to say that I will not be happy until I see a paparazzi line perp walk. So, I mean, I just, who knows what will happen? Number one, whether there really will be an arrest. And if, I mean, I would love it if they, you know, took him in handcuffs and, you know, what what could be better? Put him in an orange jumpsuit. I'd be, you know, I think we'd all be thrilled and, you know, uh, drooling over those photos. But um, ultimately, we want to see justice done. And I just find it so ironic that, or I mean, it's kind of pathetic that um, they're all screaming about, you know, taking our country back and democracy and justice. And this is all about um, subverting uh, justice, like subverting the case for Stormy Daniels. So I just think it's really, you know, it's like they have to cast the same aspersions that they're being accused of. Just uh, always, it's like you said, you can't make it up. Well, well, Catherine, you talked about you know wearing the orange jumpsuit, and I know you're talking about the visuals there. But honestly, you know, they only detain you without any kind of bail or bond if you are a flight risk. And to me, if they think he's a flight risk, don't stop him. You know, Um, maybe, maybe they could take him down to the southern border where one of his pieces of his border wall fell down and go. Hey, if you make a run for it, we're not we won't catch you. We'll let you run across the border. Um, go, you know, and then we won't see you anymore. But um it just I, I I question that too if we actually will see an arrest. Is this legit or is he trying to drum folks up? Um that's Tim, a, what do that's you think? A big question. Yeah, do you think he's uh, actually going to be Arrested on Tuesday, or well, is this? I, I this tell you, I, I tell you this part. much. I tell you this much. I don't think he knows. They're certainly the, you know, they're, they're certainly not going to tell him. Uh, I don't believe there was any leak. I, 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 I do think he just. I, I think he thinks something may happen this week, but I think he just made a date up, and I think he may be doing this to raise money or. Or see 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 what shakes out of the bushes when he does it, you know, make this announcement and then set back and watch everything that happens and see what everybody says, especially on his side. I think they would really love 
for another certain politician down in Florida to raise his head and make some comment like this to see if Trump could really jump on it or something. Uh, but uh, I, th- he has no way of knowing. That's what I think. And they ask, you know, the media immediately ask uh, the DA's office for their comment, and they said they would have no comment. Of course uh, they would and say I've that. never heard. I've never heard of a DA's office that called uh, somebody that was under investigation and said, by the way, we're going to arrest you uh, on such and such a day next week. Either one of y'all ever heard of that? I haven't. So I I, I just think Trump might have thrown it out there to see what's said. And we're going to get into the political ramifications of this, but let's just get into the logistics of it. From my understanding, this is New York. Let's say he's down at Mar-a-Lago, which I think other than when he does a rally, that's where he's at. So, you know, that's one end of the eastern seaboard. New York's almost at the other end. Um, And so, therefore, the logistics, I would assume this would be the kind of case where they would – it's not a federal case, so therefore they would have to tell him to come in for a, um, you know, the arraignment. Um, I don't know what did either of y'all know the timeline on how much notice you give somebody to come in for an arraignment. I know this is highly unusual. Usually, you commit a crime, they find you. You know, it's it's a different deal, and when it's more of a, I guess we'll call a procedural crime. I, I don't know. It just seems like there's – if he really does have to be arraigned, there's going to be some – you know, he's got to go back up to New York. They're not going to raid Mar-a-Lago, we would think, and take him up. I guess they could. Catherine, did you, do you know anything about logistics or heard the speculation discussed? Well, you know, sometimes they will, you know, go and arrest someone and bring them back. Sometimes they'll just make an arrangements with someone's attorney and say – you know, we expect him to be in the office, be you know, arraigned uh, on Tuesday. We we want him to be in the office on Tuesday, March, whatever that is, twenty first, and um, and and we expect you to, you know, he's, you know, called to come in. I think it just depends on how, um, on you know, the circumstances of the case and you know what kind if they've been cooperative up until that point you know stuff like that but you know now they're calling on DeSantis to not allow them to uh what's the word I'm looking for extradite extradite him yeah. Yeah, that's if they had to come get him in Florida that means he doesn't go willingly although it sounds like I mean, I think obviously he's trying to use the threat of this or the reality of this to some advantage. Tim, your thoughts on what Tuesday would look like if this is actually true? Well, I think he would show up in his nicest suit with his big red tie and his attorneys, and he would uh, he would want a spectacle. With with a lot of people outside waving Trump flags, maybe 
maybe a big crowd of them doing that as he left Mar-a-Lago in, a, in his motorcade and got on his plane and went up there. And uh, he he would, I'm sure, on his way in, look to see where the media had planted themselves. And then when he came out, I would say the whole thing would take about 30 minutes. When he came out, he would immediately head for the bank of microphones and begin uh, talking about how unfair it all is and how he was forced to be, you know, the, the the whole nine yards. Now, I believe Donald Trump wants a spectacle of some sort on Tuesday. Uh, there's been talk of him holding up in Mar-a-Lago, and so I, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, I, I think if they did, like Catherine was saying, you know, people are calling on DeSantis, well – the Trump people don't want DeSantis to get credit for anything. Therefore, if right. you go willingly, you can be like, I'm going to do what's the right thing, even though they're doing the wrong thing, and, and he can make a spectacle. I just I, – I think there's probably a less than 50% chance that he gets arrested, at least on Tuesday, and, and maybe in the near future anyway. Um, but because you know it is a tricky thing, uh, the whole thing about it. Now let's switch over and talk about the political side of this, because that is quite interesting. Um, let's and really he doesn't even have to be arrested. If the people that are going to vote for him or vote in the Republican primaries believe that he could be arrested, believe that people are trying to arrest him, that's probably about as good as being arrested. Politically, so Catherine, what do you think this does, in particular, in the Republican primary for Donald Trump? Either the real the realization of this or the believable threat of this. Well, I think all it does is rev up his um, base and make them more enthusiastic about him because they think he's being attacked and they, you know, he's their man and blah blah blah. So I don't think uh, – I think it is a um, – it might be a boost for voters, for his base voters. For the rest of the Republicans, I, I suspect if they're not big Trump supporters, they're probably going to vote for someone else anyway. So uh, it may be a – it may be a wash. Jim, kind of same question there. What do you think this does politically to him in the Republican primary? No, in the short term, I think it's uh, it's a boost for him. Obviously, uh, I, I I think it makes the the not only his uh, most ardent supporters rally to him immediately, but maybe some that that uh, his campaign considered. Being on the fence, maybe liking Trump's uh, ideas, but liking perhaps DeSantis delivering them. Uh, this this might swing them over toward him. Uh, I think he, they also, uh, in the short term, uh, hope it helps them politically uh, with congressional Republicans, and I think we're seeing that already bear some fruit from the from the usual suspects, at least. And uh, so I I don't think Trump and his bunch see a downside to this right now. 
Yeah, I, I definitely think that this is something that is a a net positive for him from the Republican base. He, he really, I don't know that he needed this, if he has truly made this up out of whole cloth um, this Tuesday date. No, I don't really know that he needed it because poll after poll shows him winning the Republican primary. Um, there were conflicting polls. You know, we discussed that one from Florida last week. Another one came out from, oh, I forgot if it was Emerson, um, one of the other national polling firms did a poll of Florida, and it actually showed Donald Trump beating Ron DeSantis in this one. So, and not to say that one's more right than the other one, because I didn't go deep into the cross tabs with the methodology, but, I, you know, my sneaking suspicion is every poll of the Republican primary actually undercounts Trump more than um, any other Republican candidate. And so, therefore, I, I mean, I think he's still the odds-on favorite, and this is just going to be more for that grievance base to want to support him more because if they, you know, turn away from Trump because of really anything, but particularly, you know, the Democrats coming after him, even though the DA in this case is, may not be working in partisan terms at all, it, it's going to be played that way. It actually you've got to support him if you're a true Republican at that point. And so that's just going to feed in and help him more. Um, I don't know at what point if he took on enough charges and would that point he'd be before the 2024 election, does he get disqualified from running? And that was something the Republicans actually did have the chance to do in the House or Senate and didn't take um, their chance on that because they would have been the ones – um, the Senate, I should say, would have been the ones that really had the chance to, to do that, but they didn't. And so, therefore, um, this just continues to string this out. So let's now move on to the next part of this. Let's just say, you know, this call, Trump wins. I think he's going to go in anyway, but he wins, and he's the nominee. And we can pretty much say at this point, generically, regardless who the Democratic nominee is, Joe Biden or the field, um, what does this do to the general election if he did have charges hanging over him, Catherine? And well, I think, Catherine, um, put, a, put a pin in that real quick. I, I apologize okay. because we're excited because right now our guest is calling in for the third time, Dr. Rachel Beitkoffer. Welcome, Dr. Beitkoffer. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yes, well, I'm just glad you could come back on again. Um, since you've been on, we know that you have been talking more and more about messaging and how, um, really, I guess the Democrats should message, but in, within that, I'm sure there's some Republican information as well. So you're the one that talked about negative partisanship. You're, I think you identified the term. That's in the era we live in. I actually teach American government now and will use your, your concept of neg negative partisanship with my children or my students. Um, so in this negative partisanship environment, what is the best way for just a generic candidate to message? 
Yeah, so just to, to rehash for everybody who may be unfamiliar with the term negative partisanship, and, and it, to be fair, it is actually from political science. I, myself, I've written research about it. Other political scientists have too, but where it is um, distinctly mine, as you argue, is that I've extended it out to electioneering and messaging strategy. And, and what it is, is, and it's, is you have your partisan identification. You might be a Republican. You might be a Democrat. And that's a positive association. You've chosen one party or the other because of, you know, policy or whatever it might be. But you also, because of that, grounded within that, unfortunately, in American politics, because we have two parties and they oppose each other, anything that's two-sided like that tends to have that kind of energy, right? Um, it, 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 unfortunately, what, what happens is in that positive identification as a Democrat or a Republican, you also have negative emotions about the opposition party and over the last 20 years especially as republicans um, as we know republicans have had uh, issues with extremism in the party some of that stems from their recognition of that negative component of partisanship tapping into it and, and really inflaming the sentiment about the opposition party because you know as it turns out it's a very effective electioneering um and, and that's it's, so that is why I'm, I'm teaching Democrats how to respond and, and match that negative partisanship strategy. But hopefully that helps, you know, explain those a little bit to the, to the listeners. Yes, that, that definitely does. Well, so now uh, – and actually I, that gives me a chance to kind of break my question out anyway, which I think is good. We have uh, different kinds of districts. I thought Ron Brownstein's article with the four kinds of districts is very interesting, and I might have saw, you know, kind of three – You've got heavily Democratic districts, which if you go and lose those, that's not very good at all if you're a Democrat. But you have really hard districts to win, you know, the district that Tim and I are sitting in, Marjorie uh, Taylor, and then um, and plenty of other of those around the country. Then you have districts that are very swing or persuadable. Um, is there any difference in the way a candidate should message to those different types of districts, or should you just – Go the same way. Well, certainly. Here, let me um, kind of give you guys some historical frame to understand that. Um, you know, I saw the round, the Brownstein piece, and you know, it, I think it is important to distinguish between the truly competitive, which is a very small window of seats. We'll talk about that in a second, and the more like long shot but still reasonably competitive, and then the other half of the you know, districts in which there's really no two-party competition. That's always been the case uh, since the federal legislature was, the House of Representatives was created. It's always been the case that the predominant amount of districts are are drawn in such a way because of the populations, especially within them, um, to produce safe districts in which the party's real, the person that represents that seat, its real threat is not the opposition party. Instead, it becomes internal, right? If I'm not good enough of being a Republican or a Democrat, somebody might come and primary challenge me who, who says, you know, this is not a real Democrat. I'm a real Democrat, right? So that's that's always been the case. But where, where we're at and, and how this relates to America, contemporaneous American politics is that over time, the parties began to recognize, you know, you could draw these districts in a way to create more or less safe ones or create certain safe ones for one party or the other. And as they 
sliced and diced in a couple of redistricting, the Democrats in 2000 to try to hold off the Southern realignment, especially down in states like Georgia. And then, of course, the Republicans really take it to the next level in the 2010 and 2020 redistrictings. What we've seen is the number of districts in which you must compete with the opposition party to win in a general election has really, really declined. And it only makes up about 12, 15 percent of all the House seats. So out of 435 seats, it means only about 40, maybe 50 in any given cycle are truly what we consider competitive toss-up districts, right? So um, it does matter a lot because if you think about what I just said, I said, you know, most, you know, more than three quarters of everyone who serves in the House is in a district where they don't face any possibility of losing to the other side and instead are worried about internal politics. Uh, being party uh, ideologically challenged in a party primary, that really has fueled and, uh, fueled and juiced the polarization problem that we're facing, and it's especially pronounced in the Republican Party as they've, you know, attempted to use this tool more more craftily to um, enhance their majorities in both state legislatures and in the federal legislature process. Yes. Well, I've got to come back at the end and wrap up, so I may have a question. Uh, at that time, too, I reserve the right. So I'm going to pass it off to Catherine, who will pass it off to Kim for some more questions. Catherine? Good times. <laughs> yes. Thanks so much for being on. We always like having you on. It's oh, always it's always great to come back with you guys. I love you all. <laughs> thank, thank you. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, sort of uh, more depth about messaging and um, sort of how it, the impact on our democracy, which sounds so dramatic, but who knew we were really going to be at this point where we are worried about that. And, you know, I think this recent rumor about um, former President Trump being arrested on Tuesday has sort of illuminated that. Like, I was just reading some of the um, news on it, and the you know the republicans are claiming that that the Repu- the democrats are you know destroying democracy and um you know subverting the the judicial process and all this and i read that and i'm like no that's what you're doing <laughs> that's what the republicans are doing so how do we ever you know message ourselves or get ourselves out of this like Slump where we're like everybody's accusing everything, every the other ones of the same thing, and I feel like it happens more and more. And I, I don't know how we. Uh, it's like a deadly spiral. I'm just wondering yeah, if you have any be, thoughts about how we do, how yeah. we get out of that. What's it? I mean, to be clear, like it, it, you know, there's a there's a technique of messaging. It's not a it's not a um, approved. <laughs> form of messaging, right? So, so right. Not, it certainly wasn't invented by the Nazis, but it was used quite deftly to, um, you know, en- enable the Third Reich to rise to power and seize power in Germany, and it's called gaslighting, right? So there is one reality, right? It's an objective reality. I mean, most of, most things can are objective, you know, <laughs> 
And, um, you know, it's, um, you know, facts that Donald Trump has committed these crimes in plain sight. It's not, you know, there's, you have to stretch to imagine why Democrats want to investigate them. Yet, as you've pointed out on the other side, they're convinced that we're the criminals, we're the ones stealing democracy, we stole a whole election, we're going to steal the next one. And it's, you know, that is a, um, it's important for people to understand that is not a communication. You don't need a communication strategy to go up against that. You need something that is geared towards breaking mass psychosis and breaking through mass psychosis and competing against it. Right. So my messaging work is, is focused on that, uh, you know, meeting the reality as, as to where it is. And, you know, understanding, too, the psychological research that you can't, as you've probably noticed in your own efforts, you can't just out, you can't fact, you know, pop the bubble with facts, right? It's like you show facts and there's a, there's a cognitive bias that people have called confirmation bias. All humans have confirmation bias. But for, you know, your, your Republican uncle right now, <laughs> you, you know, they're really um, in a manufactured echo chamber in terms of the media stimulation coming in. And what it has done is really preyed on confirmation bias. So as long as they aren't reporting about the Fox Dominion lawsuit, as long as they're not reporting the findings from the January 6th committee, the viewers aren't going to seek that out because that kind of knowledge, you know, it, it, it uh, directly in, rushes up against their worldview so they're not seeing that information, and they don't want to see that information. So when you present that information to them, they're, they're going to put up a wall. And it's really important for folks to understand the severity of, of where we're at. I mean, the truth of the matter is we had a Republican president who didn't want to transfer the power, who, you know, engaged in both a long-standing, multiple-pronged uh, plot to attempt to, you know, stop that transfer of power, and then when that failed, sent an armed mom. I mean, those are things that happened in reality, and Republican messaging can do as best to construct a alternative version of reality, but at the end of the day, there, there is one reality, and we have to hug it and make sure that we are, um, you know, talking to those who are reachable with reality and telling them the stakes of this election cycle. Oh, it just sounds so exhausting, and I feel like there's so many forces working against it and they're much more convincing to those people who are seeking that you know that their own reality it's very it's very um frustrating and i, I do describe so, it as a fever right like it, there's yeah, a fever like, and, and like we have to dire. find a way to break it <laughs> yeah it, it, is dire. Dire. it is dire and, yeah. yeah and and um and um yeah it's like a fever that's a good that's a good way to describe it um uh, the reason i i use that analogy is my job is to you know <laughs> a quick radio interview so it's hard to get into specificity but my job is to break that fever right like that's what i i'm focused on um number one keeping it from from having too much power in the in, in the short term but breaking it in the long term is the strategic objective and it needs to be for every american that wants to have a peaceful prosperous future uh you need to have a, a healthy republican party to do that so that we're of strong interest in getting them to drink some medicine i happen to think that that only form of medicine that can cure that fever is an, another electoral flocking um, you know, in the most important election of our entire lifetimes, which will be the one that's coming up next. Oh, how many times have we heard that? Really? No, you know, it, but here's the thing. Like this time you saw the triangulation from Mitch McConnell and others who were like, oh, we're going to lose as long as we're running these MAGA people 
and on, you know, breaking democracy, right? But the problem is, is that there's there's competing interest within the Republican Party and its power center, and the, the party's core base is no longer 30% MAGA, 70% establishment. It's the opposite. 30% establishment, 70% MAGA. And, and if it just so happens that they won control of the House of Representatives, probably at the worst time for people who are interested in seeing the Republican Party reset, because it put, put one man's ambition in uh, the crosshairs of what's best for the Republican Party. And what would have been best for the Republican Party is if both the Senate and the House leader had banded together to say, we're not going to do this anymore. We've seen how bad this performs for us in general elections. This is not the first election that they've underperformed in because of MAGA. And we're going to do this new thing. They were unable to do that because Kevin McCarthy wanted to be Speaker of the House and had to do it with basically two or three seats of margin, not 20 or 30 seats, which would have allowed him much greater flexibility. So I would push back, and and, and just because I don't want people to become uh, despondent and feel that there's not hope, I would push back and say we actually have made great progress by sorting the red wave. They expected this huge victory, and they know why they didn't get it, at least the same smart Republicans do, yet they find themselves unable to triangulate because the party is controlled by that House majority right now. So I think the time is, in other words, we have them on their heels electorally, and now it's time to, to really finish the job in 2024. Okay. I, I, I think that was a really good argument. So I will, uh, I will um, push away my... Uh, my ennui about this and be more uh, excited about 2024. Just and never forget, to... like, your ennui is what, like, their whole purpose is to make you feel the I know. way you feel, right? Yep. <laughs> so like, You're don't right. let them win twice, right? Yeah, good. <laughs> okay, I'm going to pass it to Tim. Thanks so much. Yeah, Dr. Rachel, uh, right? <laughs> good yeah. evening, Dr. Bettercoffer. Thank you for being with us again tonight. Um, ah, I just love your draw we, every time. It's such a pleasure. <laughs> Brings me back we, to my years in, in the we South. Have, you know? uh, we've been talking a lot about uh, the state below us, and I know that you've done some tweeting and stuff about it lately, and, and, and I, and I want to start there. What about a state like Florida? We have book bans. We have direct attacks by state government against major corporations like Disney. We have a takeover of public school curriculum and an attempted takeover uh, uh, of college curriculum. We have uh, women's right to choose essentially vacated. We we uh, they're going after the court system. What sort of government is Ron DeSantis operating, and why has he benefited so much electorally from the way he's conducting himself? You know, uh, he's giving people a strong man, right, 
and uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that unfortunately some people find that to be very attractive now i want to caution people against reading too much into DeSantis's large majority in florida it is true that he had a large majority but it is also true that nobody really contested that governor's race it was not massive money flowing to chris charlie christ i mean i'm sure he had some money because he's charlie christ and he was probably able to raise some but i would say that there was not a full court press in either the florida senate or the governor's race this cycle and that was a strategic decision that the party had to make that i think bore its fruit in in, in preventing them from having their red wave in many other key races um and especially control of the midwest so um but so he is strong i'm not going to lie to you he's he's probably a you know 55 percent um Florida governor, right? But um, mm-hmm. where he's where where I think is interesting is this: where the Republican and the people have a really hard time accepting this. So I think I say it every time I come on the show. Nobody pays attention to politics. The people that are listening to Kudzu Vine Radio and follow me on Twitter are extraordinary Americans in their civic commitment. Okay, they know everybody. Mm-hmm. They know who Marjorie Taylor Greene is. They're following all the you know the SVB bank collapses on the day that the SVB bank collapse that whole week. Like, it wasn't even a top 20 trend because it's March Madness at <laughs> the Oscars, you know? Huh. So, like, those things were, like, the things that most of America was paying attention to. In our world, it was the most pressing story of the month, right? So to, uh-huh. I, it, I mention all of that because where DeSantis and the Florida Republicans have, have been advantaged is in that vacuum of attention that people tend to play to state politics. Now, I think it has actually served him poorly, and let me tell you why. Because I think the things that he has done down in Florida have attracted national attention, as you just alluded to when you led into the question. We've been talking about the state down below America's penis all week, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had to get my Florida joke in there, right? Anyway, um, so like the, the the problem with that is that he's if he's creating national headlines, it means he's making a lot of state and local media as well. And I don't know that that's going to serve him as well as people think it is in the long term. And I think it's also hugely beneficial because the argument that I would make against DeSantis, who I think is the much more likely Republican nominee in 2024, I think when we get a few months further down the road, Donald Trump is going to be quite obviously unnominatable, right, due to indictments. I think he's going to have multiple indictments. So I think DeSantis, he's so strong out of the gate with name ID, which is the big thing in these in these kinds of contests. And he just looks really, really, really solid in that. Has been so concerned with making sure that the MAGA base has that safe landing spot with him and that it's only with him and not other members of the Republican primary field that he has actually done himself a great disservice for this upcoming general election. And if he is the nominee, I think that the um, stuff that he's done in Florida is going to be a major feature of the campaign against him. Mm -hmm. Now, if he chooses to run, um, I am picturing him and Donald Trump on a debate stage, and I'm picturing DeSantis as more of a toned-down version of Marco Rubio and having a Marco Rubio moment. I'm picturing Donald Trump kicking the hell out of him on that stage. Am I right about that? 
I don't think I, I don't know. I mean, honestly, I don't know that that's what we're going to see. I don't even think we're going to know. I don't even know for sure if we're going to see a Donald Trump on a debate stage because right now the RNC, at least the last that I've heard, and I haven't looked at this in a couple of weeks now, is sticking by its commitment that that every candidate entering a Republican primary debate will have to take a pledge not to run as an independent. And of course, that pledge mm-hmm. is specifically designed for one Donald Trump. Right <laughs> now, obviously, we're going to have competing interests because he's going to want the ratings as much as they will from these primary debates. But, you know, again, I expect that Donald Trump, this is going to be his first indictment in New York. I I don't think it will be his last. I think he's going to be facing very bad indictments out of Georgia. So I just don't think that Donald Trump is going to have the same swagger. His tricks are predictable. Um, Where I think Mm -hmm. DeSantis is wrong in his strategy, though, is my assumption is if today that debate was to happen and Trump was out there, you know, saying terrible things to him, that DeSantis's strategy would be to not return fire. And I think that would be a big mistake. So, you know, if DeSantis figures out where his legs are in terms of, of navigating, trying to win over the MAGA base and the lines that he can draw, right now that is a very sharp line because Donald Trump is still technically the favorite amongst the base voters, right? But say if mm-hmm. an indictment starts to worry that base, and some of it is sentiment-thinking people, right? But much of it isn't, but and very tribal and, and mob-ish in its mentality. But some of it is going to start to get nervous about nominating somebody who's under federal indictment, possibly two different state indictments. And I think Don, I think that will give Ron DeSantis the upper hand in those. And, and you have to also understand or, or anticipate this. In a debate, since you're expecting that, the expectations are going to strongly favor Donald Trump, and that can be a real issue. When you have high expectations and you don't deliver at a very high level, you end up like Barack Obama in that second debate against Mitt Romney in 2012, where he did fine. There was absolutely no like gaffes or mistakes that Obama made, but because he wasn't terrific, right, everyone was like, oh, Romney won his debate, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, Donald Trump's going to be de- dealing with ex- extraordinary high expectations and I think multiple indictments but we will stand by and see could could Ron DeSantis be elected uh, running a type of campaign in which he basically doubles down on MAGA issues yeah, absolutely. Whoever the Republican nominee is, I mean, I actually think Donald Trump is the least electorally viable of them all in terms of popular vote share at the end of the day, right? Uh, Ron DeSantis mm-hmm. is a guy that this is going to be an extraordinary tight race with all all of the MAGA stuff. So you ask me, can he get elected with all of that stuff? And I'm going to tell you that it, the answer will depend on how good the Democratic strategy is at highlighting it and making that the central focus, right? This is a man who wants to defund Social Security and steal your retirement. He, they want you to work till you die. This is a man who, who thinks that his parental judgments should supersede yours and your, and the, your most intimate health care decisions for your child, right? I think there's a lot of meat there, and, you know, I hope that the Democratic Party has made enough strategic progress to run an effective um, you know, negative partisanship style campaign that really centers on making sure average Americans who, again, don't pol- follow politics, they, you know, they are much more into March Madness than they ever are into any of this stuff, gets told just how scary the DeSantis agenda will be for them personally and what it will cost them personally. And if we do that, I think that we have very good chance of beating Ron DeSantis, but I don't want anyone to think that it will be an easy fight. Mm-hmm. And I, I certainly agree with you on that. I think he would be 
a very difficult debate. I want to switch over and ask you uh, one question um, about national politics before I send it back to David. Uh, all my life, I've, I've, I've watched politics, and uh, I'll date I'll date myself going back into the 1960s. Uh, I very vividly recall the election of 1964, for instance. And all that time, the Republican Party would say two things, you know, and one of them was to stress a strong national defense. And they always projected themselves as a party with a strong foreign policy. That was never more, I think, amplified than under the time of Ronald Reagan, especially about 1984 when he when he was uh, running for re-election. Ronald Reagan was the ultimate player on the international stage, projecting America's strength through his own person, or, or that was what he was attempting to do, and, and it seemed, you know, to, to work very well. Why now is the Republican Party, the party of Ronald Reagan, embracing isolationism? Yes, really. <laughs> yeah, you're, you know, you're, yes, exactly. Yes, um, National Defense Republicans, right? Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. it's just it, it is as much of a per, per, plank of the party as as its other two pillars, right? The abortion issue and you know lim- low taxes, right? <laughs> it uh-huh. should be a sacred cow, and and it is not. And I, you know, I'm not going to lie. I think DeSantis is a real threat to you know America's geopolitical um, status in the world. I think we're it tottered under Trump, and then Biden has done more you know, stabilized it and more with the expansion of NATO and the response to the invasion of Ukraine. But it does scare, mm-hmm. I mean, it should scare, I'm a hawk on national security, not a Republican-type hawk, a hawk on national security, though, in such that I understand geopolitical dynamics well enough to know that this weakness is not good for us. It's, it's extraordinarily bad for the Ukrainians who are, you know, trying to hold back and beat back this invasion, but it is incredibly damaging to America and to all of our foreign um, interests, and, and eight, frankly, 80 years of post-World War II investment in creating a global environment that is really hard to see giant and, and intense conflict in. So um, mm-hmm. I think this is a huge issue for the Republican Party. You dated yourself back to the 60s, and I loved it. It made me smile. You can't see that. But because I teach about the Southern political realignment and how deep, mm-hmm. deep, deep uh, Democratic the South was in the 60s and it started to change around then, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's really um, – I think a time period where people who are concerned about America's role, now, um, in, you know, as, as America, as the world's police, and you know, we have this massive military that we have built, and um, you know, uh, it should not be in the wrong hands. It needs to be in the hands of smart, competent people who get America's role in the post-World War II, um, you know, NATO UN paradigm, and understand why it, how important that is to global security and to people's lives, you know, literal lives. So I hope that, um, you know, I hope to make the argument to some of these voters on national defense that they just, it's not a party that we can trust right now with our security. Uh, and a final quick question. Is it a major issue um, 
in in the campaign next year? So I think when you poll this issue, that's why I'm not a big fan of, of using poll testing to figure out what you want to focus on on messages, and Republicans are not either, because uh, they created CRT out of thin air, right? It certainly wasn't polling mm-hmm. because they created it, right? Um, so I would never base what I'm going to focus on based on what is the most salient, I mean, within reason. I'm not saying, you know, Roe is now on the agenda and is obviously the most salient um, mm-hmm. uh, with Social Security and Medicare, the defunding of that this radical mega economic proposal that they've put forward. But in that fourth tier is absolutely national security. And I don't know that other Democrats are as focused on that issue as I am right now, but if I have my way, it will be a major focal point of Biden's reelect for sure. All right. Dr. Bittacoffer, I thank you. And with that, I'm going to send it back over to David. David? Yes, well, Dr. Bittercoffer, I just have one more question that's like a, a core you know, political question. You were talking to Catherine about how narrow the Republican majority it is. Uh, Tim had asked you about Florida, and obviously that was a state you mentioned that we didn't play in, but a state that we consider a very democratic state that very likely did cost us uh, the Congress, which was, I guess, surprising because it was a midterm election for a Democratic president, was New York. Um, from what you can tell across the country, because I know you're out in, on the Pacific Coast, what happened in New York that caused us to perform so badly and that we lost so many seats, even to someone like George Santos? And what do we do to fix that moving forward? And, you know, and it's completely avoidable, those losses in New York, um, the losses in 2020 that put us in a position for 2022 where we I spent two years trying to devise a strategy that could disrupt a midterm effect and then get people to adopt it. Like that would have never happened if we had just won these races that we're supposed to win. And to answer your question, I mean, number one, if you don't understand this educational realignment and especially how Republicans system exploits that educational realignment, and by that I mean non-college educated voters of all stripes are moving towards the Republican Party because the propaganda that they have put out has been very effective, but it doesn't work as good when, you have, when you're for the highly educated, okay? And, in fact, it's, it's had a reverse effect to some extent with some college-educated whites. They used to, that used to be the Republican, you know, base, basically, right? And then they started to lose that, you know, smaller margins and then ended up losing it for the first time in, I think, 2018. And so... When if with the GOP, what they did is they went into New York and they there's a bunch of districts that have rural tails, and they took advantage of the Democrats asleep at the wheel a in terms of investment and like the rigor of defense, but also um, they know what they're doing when they're pushing these these rural and working class. I mean, non-educated anyway. I don't want to say working class because. You know, play, some people are educated and working class, but um, less educated populations, they've targeted them very effectively with this culture war propaganda that makes them afraid to vote for Democrats. And again, it's so important to recognize, like, the re- Republican dominance electorally has happened in a vacuum of civic knowledge for the electorate that they have exploited. And, you know, they make things up about us that are very effective and, and have no scruples. So we're up against that, and, and we can whine about it and wish it was different, or we can just meet this moment and, you know, push back with, with full force, and that's what I advocate that we do. Yes, what excellent, interesting information you've shared with us. 
Well, if people want to read more about you, we know you're on social media. I believe you have a Substack. You may have five other projects I don't know about. So right now, just share with our listeners anywhere where they can get more of your great insight and information. Well, I do recommend you follow me on Twitter at Rachel did a Copper, and my, my Substack is called The Cycle on Substack. <laughs> but the big thing is my book. It's coming out via Crown. Hopefully sometime this fall, I, I've turned, you know, we're in the process of editing and finalizing it, and I don't have a publication date yet for you guys, but it's called Hit Em Where It Hurts, How to Save Democracy by Beating Republicans at Their Own Game, and it's literally a manual on how to construct effective messaging against a propaganda machine. Well, as long as that book's on time um, or anywhere close, it sounds like we have your next appearance planned, and that'll be discussed that book sometime coming soon. Sounds good, guys. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on the Kudzu Vine tonight. Thank Thank you, you, Josh. Thanks for having me. You enjoy that nice spring weather down there. (laughs) (laughs) It's cold today. Is it? (laughs) Yeah. It is. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Yes. Dr. Rachel Bittacoffer, um, Democratic – oh, well, I should say just political science expert um, that works now in democratic messaging. Always good to have her on the show. And, and writing another book, you know how we love authors. So, um, you know, hopefully she'll, we'll be on her audio book tour list, and I mean audio being on our show. Um, well, guys, guess what? One of our other guests from the show in the past – Tegan Goddard came out just about the time the show start started. The New York Times reported, and he posted it on there, that a Trump indi- indictment is unlikely to be Tuesday. Actually, they have more uh, witnesses for the grand jury to hear on Monday, and even if they voted mm-hmm. after that, mm-hmm. it's unlikely they could actually even get him um, indicted on Tuesday. So his yeah, timeline is um, so <laughs> with that, let's move on to the other thing we plan to talk about. Seven minutes. I don't know if we can do it, but we're just going to have to hit and run quickly. Not one, not one, but two politicians from Tennessee have made the news recently for not good reasons. Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally is apparently a self-identified, prolific social media liker. Um, that was the term they used in his defense, and uh, among other places, John Oliver on Netflix tonight went deep into this. And then um, we've all heard about George Santos, but Andy Ogles, new congressman from the Nashville area, metro and Nashville area, is trying to you know do what he can to um, give George Soros a run for his money. Um, Catherine, who do you want to start with, the lieutenant governor or the congressman? Did you say George Soros or George Santos? He's George Santos. I'm sorry, Jeff. I said George. I meant George Santos. Trying to give George Santos a run for his money up there in New York with the um, padded resume, we'll say. Oh, I don't think I heard about this one yet. Um, I, I I could go for either one. You you pick. Okay. Well, we'll we'll talk about it since we'll we'll inform you then on. Andy Ogles, and I'm probably going to forget some of the things old Andy's done, but apparently they've gotten into his resume, and he's claimed um, degrees he doesn't have, jobs he didn't have, businesses he didn't start. And the most recent one, you know, George Santos apparently took in money from an animal 
um, rights or an animal advocacy group and then didn't give it to the animals. Well, apparently there was a child burial GoFundMe that Andy Ogles was involved in, and the money never went to the family. Um, so George Santos is ripping off um, pet lovers. Um, Andy Ogles is ripping off you know human beings um, with his charities, and it is just ballooning. Now, here's the deal. George Santos, of course, has a district that's very persuadable that could be one in the future. Apparently, Andy Ogle's district is very Republican, and they've had con- controversial uh, congressmen up in uh, Tennessee before, and they didn't move on from them. Uh, so, Tim, we know you a lot of times have all those details in. Tell me what I've forgotten or give more details about Andy Ogle. Well, you, you, you were right about one thing. He is from the most Republican county in Tennessee. That's Williamson County, uh, a county I know well because I have a very good friend that lives there that I've been to see a few times. Uh, Franklin is the main city there, and and that's where he's from. And apparently in 2014, he started up a GoFundMe uh, for a children's burial garden. He made all of these promises that there was going to be a life-size statue of Christ. There'd be benches and things where people could go and reflect and pray and and it would be essentially uh, a a grave a large grave area for for children um and uh he raised um between twenty three and twenty five thousand dollars on goFundMe for it uh goFundMe does confirm that he got the money no matter what he said. He, they tried to blame it on everybody except him, of course. There is no burial garden. Uh, the I, I, I am also um, very familiar with the cemetery in question. There's a lot of well-known people buried there, as a matter of fact. Very beautiful spot in, in Franklin. And... Uh, I, w- I was told by someone who works there that reporters have been all over that funeral home uh, because they had contacted Andy Ogles and said, hey, let's work together on this. <laughs> and then, of course, they never heard nothing else from him, and they went ahead and did their own development, and still nobody knows where the money uh went to but certainly not for a children's burial garden david i'm sorry to say that's only one of many 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 questionable and unfortunately un untrue items in his life so that that's that's what's that's what's going on yeah and i don't think we're gonna get the lieutenant governor jerry either he's off the hook or he's on next week but, um, Catherine, <laughs> I want to ask you this, because this really – I mean, this is a recurring theme. Apparently there's a politician in Florida that Wendy Davis shared with us, not on the show, but off the show, that this much like George Santos, this much like Andy Ogles. I'm not so sure Andy Ogles doesn't need to be the the Exhibit A and then Santos maybe Exhibit B here. Um, but Andy Ogles, he's probably going to continue to serve at least the remainder of this term. Used to people seem to have some shame, and they would resign, and they would be replaced. 
what's happened in our recent politics where, you know, these guys or these people just don't have any shame and they just continue to serve regardless of what comes out about them? I can't explain it. Uh, it's a um, a bit of a mystery. I mean, that's just a – those are just horrible things. I mean, to to lie about a, you know, children's, you know, it sounds like a cemetery or a park, a, a like, memory park. I mean, what, what, what's what, – what do you – I mean, it just seems like a – quite a stretch to think of that as a way to get money from people. Like what kind of horrible person does that? Um, But I don't know how they, uh, and you know, they're probably all claimed to be Christians too. So uh, I don't get it. I don't see the, I mean, I, I don't uh, yeah. get it. I don't understand it. It's, it's, it's terrible. I'll just take the last word on this real quick. He must not have a mirror in his house because I have no idea how he could look into it, um, <laughs> right? And see himself back. I mean, just shameless. Um, and so I'm sure we may find out more about Andy Ogles uh, and, and get discuss it more. We may get to Lieutenant Governor Jerry McNally um, later on. We'll see. But it's 8 o'clock, and so it's the time for the show to close. I do want to preview next week's show. I'm real excited. Somebody I've been working on getting on the show for a while. Um, the author of American Made, a book about um, people that really work, much like Rachel Bittacoff was saying, with their hands, working class folks. Um, she wrote this book about three individuals in particular, fascinating book, um, Farrah Stockman. She's also on the New York Times editorial board. Uh, Ms. Stockman's going to come on and talk to us all about American Made next week. It is an excellent book. If you can find like a, a summary of it or anything you can do, um, you'll find out much more than I've explained here in the last you know few seconds. But we're going to really have a great interview uh, with Farrah Stockman about her book next week on the show. Until then, great. and because you're gone. Night, y'all. Good night, guys. Night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and